look at Exodus chapter 6 today. Uh, we'll read a verse from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. And we'll put some verses on the screen. If you're a young Christian and you don't know your way around your Bible, then maybe I should start putting more scriptures on the screen. Sometimes I just go from passage to passage, and I know it's kind of challenging to keep up. So we'll put a few up there today. But we're not going to put Hebrews 12 up there. We're going to read that together. I heard about a young pastor took a church up in the middle of the cornfields in Iowa. And uh, one of his parishioners passed away. Uh, one of the farmer's wife had died, and uh, they had the funeral schedule, and he was going to preach. And he got lost. Couldn't find the little farmhouse. Couldn't find where the family lived. And he just drove around, and he finally found it an hour late. He saw the backhoe and a couple of workers and he came up, everyone had gone home. He got out, he saw the uh, vault cover, and he just said, well, I'll just go ahead and commit her to the Lord anyway, and I'll just pray a prayer. And he read a little scripture, prayed a prayer, got back in his car and drove off, and one of the workers said to the other, I've never seen anyone so excited about a new septic tank. <laughs> Let's read Hebrews 12, 1. You stand with me. Remember all the saints had died and gone on to heaven, and Paul continues. There's no chapter division, so he flows into chapter 12. And he says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The word race is the word agon. We get our word agony from it. There's nothing easy in the Christian life, as you know. But notice it says here, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's the key. Keep your eyes on the Lord. All the things going on around us. Our world's messed up. Homes are messed up. What a wicked world we're in. We're just pilgrims. So we have to keep our eyes on the prize, on the end of the line, where Jesus is waiting to meet us. Let's pray. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. As we look at Exodus 6 today, help us to remember what Moses experienced and that he had to keep his eye on the Lord. Lord, we ask you to bless now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we didn't say in our introduction, normally I do, but Moses is 80 years old now. And... Uh, we find him ready to lead the children of Israel, but he doesn't realize he's ready, but God does. And uh, we know he's been speaking with God, and, and God appears to him here. We don't know if he saw God in this point in time. He did experience a meeting with God in the burning bush, and now here he's again talking with the Lord. And this is Yahweh, wherever you see L-O-R-D, all capitals, so we know it's Yahweh. And he's meeting with him, and God is saying to him, you know, don't look at the circumstances. Do what you're supposed to do. Uh, Pharaoh's going to resist you, but you've got to keep going on. You've got to lead these people. And I think all of us need to learn, folks, that keeping our eyes on the Lord is the answer. How many times have I said to you, life is an eternal experience for the believer? We're just temporarily passing through this worldly place, and one day we'll be with him. And if we get bogged down and look at the temporal things and look at our possessions and look at our problems and don't keep our eyes on the Lord, we will fall short of his glory. And so it's very important for us to understand. We see the, a reminder here of God's character in verses 1 to 3. 
God says to him, I'm going to drive, Pharaoh's going to drive you out. I'm going to make it happen. Pharaoh's going to drive you out. And that's the arm of, uh, uh, his a strong arm. In other words, he's going to strong-handedly throw you out of Egypt. And so he's reminding him of what he had said earlier. He's going to drive you out. And then in verse 2, he says, I am the Lord. He said, I am the Lord. We find that four times in this passage. Verse 6, I am the Lord. Verse 7, I am the Lord. Verse 8, I am the Lord. I am, I am, I am the Lord. And we think of the seven I am's of John. Remember, John said he's the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. So he, all the I am's of John, now the Lord says, I am the Lord. I am the one. And we know he'll come and, and, and uh, walk in the earth for 33 and a half years. And what will he say before Abraham was? I am. He'll let everyone know. And that's that great title from Daniel, the son of man. That is God in the flesh. And so he says, I am the Lord. And then in verse 3, he says, And I appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. We find that first in Genesis chapter 17, and we find it 48 times in the Old Testament. That is the all-powerful God. The all-powerful. Omnipotent is, is, is the word. Omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere. All, he's all-knowing. Omniscient. So he's, he's everything, and we need to remember that. He's eternal. He's sinless in all those things about him. But he says, I appeared to them, the patriarchs, by the name of El Shaddai. And in Genesis, we find that English word, the Almighty, and all the way over in Revelation, we again, chapter 21, we find he is the Almighty. Now, if you look at this, and it says here in, in this verse, it says, I didn't appear to them by Jehovah. I was not known to them by that name. And you look at these verses on the screen, uh, chapter uh, 13 and verse 4, of um, Genesis and backing up to Genesis. They're on the screen for you. But it's interesting because the young Bible student would be a little bit frustrated because he wouldn't understand what God's saying here. Because in 13.4, what does he say? Unto the place of the altar which he had made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of what? The Lord Yahweh. And then if you look at uh, chapter 26 of Genesis, and it's on the screen again, as I said, verse 25, it says here, and he built an altar, and there he called on the name of the Lord. That's Yahweh. And so, Pastor, why would it say here uh, that they didn't know him by the name of Yahweh, but only by the name of El Shaddai? Well, when God established his covenant with them, he made himself known to them. And that's the answer. Verse 4 of our text says, and I have also established my covenant with them. You see, the patriarchs didn't know him personally until he established a covenant with them. We all knew of God in our consciences. The Bible says the grace of God hath appeared to all men. So as you are a young person, you knew God existed. You knew there was an almighty God. You may have suppressed him in your conscience because you enjoyed your sin, but you knew God existed. And your conscience told you that. And yet you didn't know him personally because the word know here, the Hebrew word know in, in verse 4 of our text in verse 3 of our text, I was not known to them. 
is a word that is a word of uh, personal experiential knowledge. It, it's a it's a very very deep word. It's the greatest word for knowing someone in the Old Testament. It's about a wife and a husband knowing each other. It's a personal relationship word. And so while the patriarchs knew he was the Almighty, they didn't quite understand who he was until he appeared into them and they experienced him. And I remember a time in my life when I was 12 years old, I experienced the Lord. Oh, I knew God existed. I'd been to Sunday school. I'd been as a Boy Scout out looking at all the great creation and realizing there is a God. There is a God. And, and then I got to know him personally. And so we find verse 4, which says, and I have also established my covenant with them. I'm so glad I'm part of the new covenant. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to have been under the law. The law was tough. I mean, and what was the failure with the law? The problem was man was involved in it. We failed. God kept his part of that covenant. But the new covenant is unconditional. I'm blessed just because I'm a part of it, and I'll mess up, and yet God will keep his word even though I won't always keep mine. That's the great thing about the new covenant. It's unconditional. It's established, and nothing's going to change that. And so first we have this uh, reminder of God's character, and then in verses 4 to 9, we have a reminder of God's covenant. And verse 4 says that I established my covenant with them. They were pilgrims and strangers. And he goes on to say, I've heard also the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. He remembered, he heard, and he remembered. I love that. Verse 6, he starts saying, I will. Wherefore, I said to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Then he says seven times, I will. If you go back to Genesis, you'll find him seven times saying to Abraham, I will, I will, I will. Here he says seven times in this passage to Moses, I will. He says, I will bring you out. I will rid you of their bondage. I will redeem you. I love that. That word redemption is so rich and deep. I have a set of books and I have a lot of set of books, but I have this set called uh, Kittle's Theological Dictionary and it comes to the word redemption and you know, a lot of my books will explain redemption in a paragraph. One set I have will explain redemption in, in three pages. But Kittles takes 40 pages to explain that word to the pastors. Why? It's so rich and deep. What a powerful word it is. We think of God's redemption in the life of Ruth. Wasn't that an awesome story? I mean, she's a Moabite, a descendant of Lot by incest. She's not even allowed to go into the house of God. And what does God do? He has Boaz redeemer, a type of God redeeming her. But then Hosea and Gomer. I mean, that story has always blown me away. Gomer's trash. Gomer, I won't say trailer trash because I've lived in a trailer a couple times. And uh, nothing wrong with that. But she's trash. And she has been with several men and had babies with other men. And yet, what does Hosea do as a type of God-loving Israel, as a type of Christ loving the church, as a type of us loving our wives, he goes and finds her in that terrible position. She's for sale in the marketplace, and he pays full price to buy her back. What a picture of Christ. We were worthless. You and I are not worth anything, but God saw us as the pearl of great price. 
and he paid full price to buy me back. And I know what I am, and you know what you are. We're undeserving, and God bought us back. Love that, redemption. But anyway, we find here, he says in the third place, I will redeem you. In verse 4, I will take you to me. Well, I love that too. How we're going to be the bride of Christ one day. Then he says, I will be, a, be to you a God. I will bring you into the land. I will give you for a heritage. The word heritage is a possession. You refer it often to Jewish property, to the land of Israel. But of course, we're a purchased possession as well. Did you know that? God purchases with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we're his heritage. I love that. I mean, I belong to God. And I know he purchased me with his blood. He owns me. And the Bible said he put a down payment in my life. The Holy Spirit was the earnest of that inheritance. When God saved me, he placed the Spirit in my heart. The Spirit just moved in. And I can call him Daddy, Daddy is what Abba Father means. He's in me. The Holy Spirit's in me. He, he owns me and his Spirit's taken up residence. I'm his possession. That's so great that God saves us like that. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's there all the time. Sometimes I wish you weren't there. You know, like when I'm driving. Oh, Lord, leave me alone. Just let me be rude. <laughs> Nobody knows how to drive but me. But he's there. And that still small voice, he says, you need to grow up. You're supposed to be a leader. You know how he does. Because he is a personal God. The Spirit is personable to me. It doesn't have a name. Why doesn't the Spirit have a name? I don't know the technical reason, but I know this. The Spirit was given to lift up Jesus. You see, when you go into a church and the whole service is about the greatness of the Holy Spirit, you don't hear the name of Jesus, you've got to leave there and think something's wrong doctrinally. Because it's all about Jesus. The Spirit is to lift up Jesus. And when we lift up Jesus, it gives glory to God and it draws men to Jesus. So I'm thankful for that Holy Spirit possessing my body. And he says, I will give to you for a heritage. Hebrews 13, 11, 13 says this. They died, it's on the screen, without ever receiving the promise. Think of the patriarchs. Abraham looks for a city whose builder and maker is God. Never saw it. Why? Abraham's an eternal being like you are. He'll see it one day. We will as well. When the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. John got a vision of it. We're going to see the real thing. Amen? So will John. But I mean, just think of that city coming down. Abraham looked for that city. Never found it. And then the children of Israel are now 430 years in bondage when they've been told they're going to have a piece of land. And they get here now into Israel, and they've been there, and they come back in 48, and they just got a little sliver of land. I mean, Arabs have 5,100,000 square miles, and the Jews have that little tiny bit of 10,000 square miles of land. And all the Arabs want that as well. But when God brought them back, he said they're there to stay. So they're there. they got that heritage. And they're going to grow as a people, and one day the kingdom will come. But here he says they're purchased, and, and, and they, have, they have a kingdom coming. Now we see here in the second place, we, we saw the covenant. Now we see a reminder of Moses' commission. I was 
kind of, you know, I, I thought about verse 9 back up. It talks about the anguish of spirit. Let's read that verse. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit. The Hebrew word actually means shortness of breath, and I couldn't figure that out, why it means that. And it came to me when I saw some girls from Colorado on the news talking about the loss of their dear friend who was murdered. And one of the girls was in such anguish, she could hardly talk, that, that pain inside. And I thought about that, and it hit me. That's why that word can be translated shortness of breath. Have you ever been so broken that you could hardly cry, you could hardly breathe because of the inward pain and agony that you were experiencing? When my daughter had her ear surgery and had a hole about the size of a nickel cut out of her ear, and I saw that when they took the bandages off, I had to leave the room because I just couldn't handle it. And I was, I was crying, and I, I could not catch my breath. You've experienced that kind of pain. And all of you have experienced it. If you haven't, you will. Maybe you're young when you lose a loved one or see someone really suffer. That just breaks you. And here we find the Bible says uh, the people were, were so broken and, and they hearkened not unto Moses. They didn't listen to him because they were hurting because they had been slaves and they wanted to deliver and no one would deliver. And now we have a reminder of the commission to Moses. First of all, verse 10, God speaks to Moses. Then we find in verse 11, Moses speaks to Pharaoh. And in verse 12, Moses speaks to God. And he says here in verse 12, they didn't listen to me. They didn't listen to me. And he says, I'm a man of uncircumcised speech. Remember, he said, I'm not very eloquent. I'm slow of speech. Sometimes I know my limitations in my speech. Sometimes I slur words, and I just ruin the English language. A European fellow said to me, uh, uh, what's, what's someone who speaks three languages? That's trilingual. How about two languages? Bilingual. He said, what about one language? I, I said, I don't know. He said, un-American. He's making fun because we just speak one language. And I've told people I took French in middle school, Paladou Francais, that's all I remember. And I took Greek in college and I took Hebrew and then I went and lived in Japan seven years and Panama ten years. And you say, well, what language? I, I'm not even good in English. I'm confused. That's the term for me. And, and I understand Moses feeling as though he's inadequate. Because all of us feel that way sometimes. Uh, he's talking about his speech. And he had forgotten what God had said to him. He said, they won't listen to me. What did God say in verse 1? What did God say in 317? They will listen. Pharaoh will listen. Israel will listen. I'll, I'll make it so Pharaoh will even drive you out. Of course, it would cost Pharaoh's oldest son's life for Pharaoh to finally do what he's supposed to do. And after all the I wills and all the I ams, he doubted God. Just like some of you who are going through trials right now thinking that you have to take care of this yourself. Maybe you're a controller, and you've got to control this. You're not going to pray about it. You're just going to take the bull by the horns and deal with it. I had a preacher come and preach for me in uh, Okinawa at our church, and uh, I had shared some things in confidence with him about one of my colonels in my church who was kind of a strong-arming type of guy, always used to his way, but I couldn't give him his way, and I was just trying in my mellow manner to, to, to calm him down, and and he said, well, I'll just take that bull by the horn, just tell him to hit the road. And I thought, well, I'm not taking your advice anymore. That's not spiritual. 
hit the road, hit the door. There's a door, you don't like it, you leave. That's not spiritual leadership. And I remember telling him about that, and that was his advice. And I thought to myself, I think the Lord has better advice. Pray, pray, pray some more. Some of you need to pray. I wouldn't dare ask for a show of hands of how many of you actually prayed today before you came to church that we'd have a great service in the Lord. But the few that did made it happen. Our music was great today. I said, isn't this good? Good to be in the house of God. But we, we talk about our week without God. We go the whole week without praying, without reading Scripture, and then we want God's direction. And you got to listen to him. You want his direction. Stay in your word. Stay in the book. But here, I, I love the 103rd Psalm. He remembereth that we are dust. God remembers what we are. I love 1 Samuel 2, 8. He lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set him among the princes. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the psalmist said? That God would even give us the time of day, but yet he does. I mean, you would think as much as God has to do, who, he wouldn't want to fool with me or with you, but he's a personal God. He lives in me. He shed his blood for me. And that old expression in that song, when, when he was on the cross, Jesus, I was on his mind. He paid for my sin and for your sin. What, what a great God we have. And we're nothing. I was thinking uh, this week about the greatness of God. I was thinking about the little uh, uh, bird, the hummingbird, that flaps its wings 60 times per second. God created that little creature. Boy, you can see the handiwork of God. Did you know the hummingbird sleeps for eight hours and doesn't need any intake, no, any nourishment? No nourishment, any nourishment. And then it wakes up, and for the 16 hours, it has to bring one-third of its body weight into its body and nectar to, to survive, just all day long, feeding itself. And then it goes to bed for eight hours. Boy, that'd be a tiring thing, wouldn't it? Thing weighs less than a nickel. God made that little beak to get in that flower and get that nectar. What a, what a creature. And then I thought, boy, 60 times a minute, that's fascinating. But then I read about the bumblebee. It vibrates 230 times per second, those little wings. Did you know it defies all, all the laws of aviation? They can't figure out how it can do that. 230 times, 230 times a second, it vibrates those wings. That great big fat little guy, and it flies like that. And we can't make anything like that. And if you don't see the handiwork of God in creation... I think about if we were on the closest star to the earth, we couldn't see the earth with a telescope because the earth's so small. And yet there are 250,000 times 250,000 stars bigger than our sun, and our sun is 330 million times as big as the earth. So get that. The sun's 330 times, 30 million times as big as the earth. And yet all those millions and millions of stars bigger than the sun. That's God. What is man? And we think, boy, we're really something. We got money. We got education. Solomon may have thought that, but he said, hey, education, entertainment, all that stuff's just a waste of time if you don't serve God. He's the reason for living. He's why we're here. He would have raptured us long ago if we didn't have a commission 
to reach the lost. What an awesome God we serve. You know, think about all of us and, uh, you know, in, in how we, we battle day in and day out. And I've, I've said this so many times over the years of ministry. There's a plan for all of it. I don't know if I've quoted Romans 8.28 here, but you all know the verse. It doesn't say all things are good for the believer. That's, that's a teaching by some televangelist that if you come to God, you're healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's, that's the teaching today. That's not the teaching I find in Scripture. I'm told to take up my cross and follow him. I'm told it's agonizing. Rewarding eternally. I mean, that's the thing, folks. If we really believe in eternal God, and we really believe we're going to stand before him, we live for him, not because of what we can get in this life. Well, if I give to this ministry, I'm going to get some money. Your motive's wrong. You give cheerfully, you give hilariously is what the word is, hilarion. You give hilariously because you really believe that God exists, and you really believe that you're storing money in heaven. You really believe that. If you don't believe that, don't give. Sounds strange for a Baptist preacher to say don't give. But your motive has to be giving to God's work because you really believe that your investment means something to God. He gave his life for us. What do we give to him? Now, I've been told I have to preach for 12, 12 o'clock because not all the food's ready. And so I don't have a plan. I, I'm, you know, I plan for 30 minutes. <laughs> so I'm going to close anyway, and then we'll do whatever we do. We'll eat the food that is ready, I guess. But in conclusion, we think about this. I want to say some things here. Stop looking at your circumstances and look at God. Your, your problems are so minuscule, so tiny for God. He just wants you to talk with him. You know what God loves for me? Believe it or not, fellowship. He wants to spend time with me. I have friends that probably don't want to spend time with me. You know? You do too. But guess who does? God. Spend time with the Lord. You should be in your Bible every day and praying every day. And I, I don't preach that a lot, but I'm preaching it today because some of you need to be in the Word. We all need to be in the Word, some more than others probably. But I was thinking about looking at Him. It's all about Him. It's not all about you. I worked with someone one time. They thought the whole world revolved around them. They would come in every day and all their problems they'd share. And you think, I'm sick and tired of hearing about that lady's issues. And they have this problem and that problem, and everything's about them. And some other person's breaking down and crying about their problems, and this person interrupts them and talks and talks and talks about themselves, and you're like, Bleh! You know, please shut up. There are other people in the world. It's not about you. It's about him. We have problems, but we need to turn them over to him. He's in control of the universe. He can handle your problems. And I have here a note. Thank him, not just for what he does. We could go on and on about everything God's done. Created the world. Created you as a baby. Think of all the things he's done. All the things in this universe, the greatness of God. But don't just thank him for what he's done, but for who 
he is. He's the I am of eternity. He's the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-caring God. Yet he's sinless, and he died for us as a sinless person. He actually was willing to go to the cross and be humiliated because the Bible said God forsook him. It means God turned his back on him because God didn't want to look at him. Why? Because he became sin for us. Not just what he does, but who he is. Here's a perfect Savior dying for all us imperfect people. I've met people who thought they were close to being perfect, but we all know they weren't. Who's God? He's sinless. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's eternal. He's a Savior. He's the Lamb that gave his blood for the sin of the world. In every book of the Bible, you can find a title for God. In every letter of the alphabet, you can find a title for God. From A to Z, the Alpha to the Omega, which is a Z in the Greek. He's everything. And if he's not everything to you, you need to check up because you have some heart problems. He's more important than you or your possessions, your careers, your wardrobe, your automobiles. He's more than all of that. And if you don't put him first in your life, you're going to stand before him empty-handed. He's God and you're not. Years ago, I had a preacher who was always very acoustic to his people. You know, he was just very almost verbally abusive. And I went to his church one time, and I left horrified. I thought you'd never get uplifted, lifted up in this church because just got up in their faces and screamed at them and told them what they were. I kind of wanted to hold a mirror in front of them uh, because to see himself and the anger in his preaching. And, and, and some people may like that, but, but I just think that the pastor's supposed to be a shepherd that feeds you. You're supposed to learn. You're supposed to grow. And sometimes, yes, we need to be encouraged. Sometimes we need to laugh. We don't always need to be chewed out. And that was his cup of tea. Uh, but I just, he, he said one time, I, I said just nicely to him, I said, do you ever encourage because your tapes and, and your leadership style seems like you always just tear your people down? He said, well, they need it, brother. They need it. And I was just kind of taken back by the whole thing. And I, and I, I thought to myself, that's just not uplifting preaching, and I've lost my train of thought is why I started down this road, but um, I, I remember that, and I thought about how we're supposed to be preachers of good news. We're supposed to encourage at times. Yes, there's times we need to be chewed out, so to speak. The Bible said the pastor's supposed to rebuke with all authority. I mean, it's a difficult thing to be everything you're supposed to be as a pastor. One of the hardest things for me is to confront someone when they're in sin, but I'm not going to preach to them from the pulpit. I'll confront them one-on-one. -on -one. That's the biblical way of doing it. We can use a pulpit as a bully pulpit, and we can bash everybody. If I ever do that, please come and say, Pastor, that was just rude. You know, if you have someone in church who's doing that, go talk to them. Spend some time with them. That's the good advice I would need. But we, we know that, <clears throat> that that's commonplace. Oh, I remember. Believe it or not, I remember. And he said, well, Jesus called the Pharisees, you know, uh, whited sepulchers who are dead on the inside, and he, he called them this name and that name, and I said to him a great political line. I said, I know Jesus. He's a friend of mine, and you're not Jesus. <laughs> you remember that line? Sometimes we want to act like we're like Jesus. We pick out some random verse. I love how Jesus reached out to people. You know why he 
got after the Pharisees because they were like that preacher who thought they were so spiritual and better than everybody. That's why he got after them. Look at Jesus in everyday life. What does he do? He sits down and eats a meal with the drunkards and the sinners. And he heals the sick and encourages the brokenhearted. And, and, and so many times we read, I never ever find where Jesus was screaming at people. I find him in the Beatitudes so sweet in his delivery of that message. I'm like, wow, I could never be that sweet. Of course I couldn't because I'm not Jesus. And I find his leadership style was so loving and kind. Think of Jesus dealing with, with Judas Iscariot, who he knew was going to betray him. How did he treat Judas? Well, if the average Baptist preacher knew someone was going to betray him, he'd be in that pulpit attacking that guy. That's not Jesus. Jesus is everything he's supposed to be because he's God. We don't measure up. I don't, you don't, but thank God for Jesus because he's worthy perfect and sinless and willing to obey the Father. Even when he knew the death would be painful, he asked God, could we not do this? And yet he went to the cross and he suffered for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the folks in the kitchen, Lord, preparing the food. And, and Lord, we're so blessed to have good people who care enough to make all this food and and, uh, Lord, the workers we have, we thank you. We thank you for uh, the music today and everything you've done. And we thank you for the spirit we've had here today. We, I feel your presence today. I know you're always with me, but it was good to be in your house. And, God, we ask to bless. If there's anybody here who does not know Jesus, they can come forward and trust him today. And anybody with problems can come and pray. We ask you to bless as we close the service and go into a time of fellowship. We pray these things in Jesus' name.